0: to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, and we are picking up on Jesus commenting on um, the miracle that he performed in the first part of John, which we examined last week. And so this is Jesus' explanation and teaching related to this specific miracle. I want to draw your attention also to the discussion guide, the community group guide that's printed for you and available for you today. This passage has three major themes in it. Um, I'm dealing with one of the most challenging ones in the sermon, but I'm not addressing the other two major themes in this passage. So there are a variety of questions here for you so that you can dive into them and grow in your understanding and knowledge of these other themes that are laid out in this discourse by Jesus. Turn to John chapter 5. This is what um, John, Jesus says about this event beginning at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. He will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes, him who sent me has eternal life he does not come into judgment but has passed from death into life truly truly i say to you an hour is coming it is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear will live for as the son has life in himself so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of because he is the son of man do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment i can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on His word. Join with me in prayer. Father, we do ask that you would give us hearts to hear your word and to heed your word and to live in response to it, live in response to it. Or it's a difficult passage. So Lord, would you give us openness and humbleness? a desire to seek you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ is the one and only judge. He will return, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And those who are in Christ will be resurrected to everlasting life, and those who are not, who are evil, will be resurrected to everlasting eternal judgment. Rendering judgment is a concept today that is so socially unacceptable. I mean, so socially unacceptable to talk about this. And yet, people do it all the time, and they do it in their individual judgments. The challenge of rendering judgment, I think, was highlighted a few years ago in a fiasco that occurred at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. The museum was putting on an exhibit for the 50th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And when they were developing this exhibit, the curators wanted to create the story and to acknowledge the thousands of Japanese who were incinerated when the bomb was dropped, and they also wanted to highlight the many, many, many more who had a very slow and gruesome death as a result of the radiation exposure. Competing with this and in conflict with this were veterans groups who wanted to highlight, through this 50th anniversary, they wanted to highlight the salvation of American GIs from the bloodbath that would have been a land invasion of Japan and to highlight how um, the American soldiers and the Japanese people were saved from this devastating battle and this war that would have gone through. However, both positions for what this display should have eventually collapsed. And instead, what happened was that the fuselage of the Enola Gay, the plane that dropped the bomb, was set up and put on display with minimal explanation. The museum's curator Explained it this way. He said that the plane and the crew and those who died, they would be, quote, allowed to speak for themselves about what actually happened and how people should understand it. That every individual would be left to their own personal judgment as to how to understand this exhibit in the 50th anniversary of this event. Andrew Delbanco, who is a historian out of the University of Columbia, someone that I've been studying in some of my coursework reflecting on this fiasco, stated, he said, in this case, there was no we, only the many eyes who came looking for a story about the past, but found themselves standing underneath a voiceless airplane. And they were standing there looking at it because the view that is so prevalent within our society is that any judgment beyond, individual, beyond the individual observer is completely wrong and inappropriate. And yet, our news media and certainly our social media and marches and, and marches and protests are filled with people who are proclaiming and declaring their utter indignation. And they're showing forth their indignation. In asserting their superior moral awareness to whatever event, policy that they are protesting at the particular moment. We live in a day right now where our desire for justice and in our society, the desire for justice is far greater than the belief. That God and Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. We live in a society when the desire for justice is far greater than the belief that Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Here's why it's because we want justice, but we don't want to judge, it's because we want the rule of righteousness but we don't want a righteous ruler, as Tim Keller observes, whose thoughts on this are particularly helpful. And so you consider that. We want want justice, but we don't want to judge. At least we don't want to judge that would be anyone besides our individual selves. And the situation that we find ourselves in as a society is really just the latest episode of a pattern that's been repeating itself for thousands of years. For Scripture makes clear there's nothing new under the sun. Everybody wants to do what is right in their own eyes. So we come to this passage of Scripture where Jesus declares himself, and he reveals that he indeed is the judge. And What we're going to see here, we look at the judge, Jesus as judge and the judgment of Jesus. We're going to see that his judgment is just, His judgment is evident. And finally, that His judgment is sudden. Look at how it develops in this passage. First off, that Jesus is just. Verses 22 and 23 explain, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Who has it? Not God the Father, but He has given it to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. He explains further in verse 26. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, that is the Son, the Father has given the Son the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And so the judgment of Jesus is just because the lawgiver has given to Jesus Christ the authority and the delegation to be the judge. It is just because it is impartial. He judges According to the laws of the only perfect lawgiver. Jesus is the just judge. He is the righteous ruler who rules righteously. Verse 30 explains it again. Jesus asserts, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' judgment is just because it is right. And it is true. And it is objective. Have you ever had that experience where you you overhear somebody else talking about you and they're kind of rendering a judgment against you? And they don't know that you're they don't know they don't know that you're hearing them. And so then you come in the room and they're like, oh so so so, so sorry. Maybe maybe that's not what I meant. C.S. <laughs> Lewis kind of reflects on that experience. He says, We have all encountered judgments or verdicts on ourselves in this life. Every now and then, we discover what our fellow creatures really think of us. I don't, of course, mean what they tell us to our faces. That we usually have to discount. I'm thinking of what we sometimes overhear by accident or the opinions about us which our neighbors or employees or subordinates unknowingly reveal in their actions. And of the terrible or lovely judgment artlessly betrayed by children or even animals, such discoveries can be the bitterest or sweetest experiences that we have, is that you can overhear somebody and when you get a unvarnished opinion of yourself, there are times when you hear that and you say, you know what, they're right, they're right. I, I, you know, I, I didn't know I was like that, but they are absolutely right. Their judgment is just, it is objective, it is true, it is impartial. And the judgment of Jesus is just and objective and true. And when he renders his judgment, everybody will say, yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. That's how it is. That, that is correct. It is just and it is true. But this whole idea of Jesus being a judge has been dropped from certainly Western Christianity, rarely if ever talked about in the church as part of who Jesus is. So you know, the idea of Jesus being a teacher and moral example, yes, everyone would agree to that. The idea of Jesus being Savior, yeah, we like that idea. Yes, yes, that's good. We can, And even if you're not a Christian, you can t- kind of tolerate that. You can, you can tolerate that Jesus would sacrifice himself for people. But the idea of Jesus being the judge and the judge of the living and the dead, no, we don't want to think about that. And we'd rather not talk about it. We'd rather pretend that it doesn't actually occur. Yet even the people who would do that in the most ardent way, I would submit, I would venture to guess that there is still a big part of them, and, or a part of you if that is you, there is still a big part of you that wants people to be judged. At least certain people. I mean, you know, I mean there are certain people who need to face judgment. Maybe like ISIS or Hitler. Everyone would agree on that, or maybe more recently, people like Kermit Gosnell, Oop. Kermit Gosnell, or Larry Nassar, or Jerry Sandusky. We say, "Yeah, yeah, those people need to face what they've done. There needs to be justice for the crimes and evils that they have that they have committed, and not only on this earth, but hopefully." before God Almighty, that they will have to give an account that they will face judgment for the evil and the wickedness that they have done on this earth. Earth. Well, if they have to meet the judge of heaven and earth, why not you? Why not us? And if they have to do it, then, then we will too. Now, some of us might say, well, that's fine. I mean, I know I'm better than Larry Nassar. Yeah, I, I know I'm better than Jerry Sandusky or, or, or Hitler. But what if the judge of the universe is just? What if he doesn't grade on a curve? What if he is a righteous judge? What if he is a just judge? If he is a righteous judge and if he is a just judge, then he cannot grade on a curve. To grade on a curve was an old grading mechanism that hasn't been used in quite some time usually. And what that means is that People would take a test, students would take a test, and there would be a distribution of where most of the students were, and the top 10% would get an A, the next 15% would get a B, the middle 50% would get a C, regardless of how they scored on the test. But a just judge can't judge, and he wouldn't judge on the basis basis of statistics. Because a righteous judge who takes the top 10% isn't a righteous judge and he's not using righteousness as the basis of justice consider this if the standard is right here and everybody falls short and he takes the top 10% because they're they're more they haven't fallen quite as short as everybody else if he's a just judge he wouldn't do that because to take the top 10% when the standard's right here is not justice and that's not righteousness And similarly, if the standard's over here, and 90% meet the standard, but only 10% are given the grade, are given the letter A, A, that's not justice either. That's not righteousness. But Jesus is is a just judge. And he will judge, and because he is just, and because he is wholly righteous, and because he he judges against the standard of God's perfect law, he will judge each and every person because he is just. So that begs the question, well, on, on what basis? And the answer is the evidence that's presented. Because the judgment of Jesus is just, and the judgment is evident. You can see this here in verse 29 when he speaks. It says, those who have done good, here's the basis of judgment, those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What is Jesus saying? When the judgment comes, you'll be judged by what you have done. And Jesus is just reiterating what he would later would be said in the book of Revelation, as well as many other passages of Scripture. For every passage of Scripture that speaks about the judgment seat of God says that people will be judged by their works, and people will be judged by what they have done. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From the presence, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. They were judged according to what they had done. I might guess that there's some alarm bells going off right about now, right? And you might be sitting here thinking, saying, Whoa, 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 where, where am I? What, what just happened? Because I come here week after week and I hear this message that I'm saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Isn't this contradicting the grace of God? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, verse 24, just just before this, Jesus makes clear. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. That would be the state of eternal judgment. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. What is Jesus saying? That everyone who believes, believes in Christ, that, Jesus, that he is the one who died on the cross and rose from the grave to pay the penalty for their sins and to purchase a place from heaven for them. Everyone who believes has everlasting life. Well, how do these two things fit together? It's that good deeds and what you do, they are not the basis of your salvation, but they are the result of it. They're not the basis. But they are the result of salvation. Indeed, James says this clearly. He says, faith with it by itself, if it does not have works, is faith without works is dead. Some will say, You have faith and I have works, and show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. But, but you know this intuitively in your own life. Imagine that you're dating someone who you're thinking about getting married to, and they say, I love you. And you're like, Oh, that means so much to me. I'm so glad that this person loves me. But as your relationship goes on, you're like, you know what? You, you, you say that you love me, but I'm a bit confused here because you, you don't want to spend any time with me. And, and you never say anything. You never say any nice words to me. You never say any positive things. Like, you, you never touch me. Like, you never, you don't want to hug me. You don't want to hold my hand ever. There's no, I get no affection from you. Like, you never give me a gift. You, ne- you never do any of these things. And you respond, and the other person responds, well, how can you say that I don't love you? And you say, well, well I, look at your, I look at our relationship, and, and you don't do anything that shows your love for me. And he's like, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. I, 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 need, to, I need to do this. So let me get this straight. What do I need to do? Um, I need to show you some gifts. You mentioned gifts. All right, so that would be... Christmas, and your birthday, and probably our anniversary, and, well, Valentine's Day coming up. I hate giving out the hallmark, but, okay, Valentine's Day is coming up, so we'll include Valentine's Day as, as a required gift day, and I need to say affirmative things to you that express this. So, how many do I need to say? Is once a month good? So, if I get 12 for the year, is 12 good? Is 12 good? And you want me to hold your hand. Is that in public or when we're together? okay. Three gifts, bonus for for Valentine's Day. I need to say 12 positive things over the course of the year, and and I need to hold your hand at some point in time. If someone said that to you, how would you respond? You'd say, you're an idiot. Right? You're an idiot. Like you're a complete and utter moron. Right? You don't love me. There's there's nothing about you that loves me. And they say, "Well, well, what do you mean? I'll do these things for you. And you say, you don't understand. I'm not giving you a list of things to do to prove your love to me. If you love me, these things would just happen. Like, if you love me, the evidence of it would be present in your life. If you love me, there would be the affection and the tokens of your affection evidenced in the way that you treat me, in the way you care for me, in the way that you think about me. And Jesus is just saying a similar thing. What he's identifying is that good deeds are not the basis of our salvation, but they are the result of it. But friends, I, I want us, and brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to consider the weight of what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is identifying is that when he comes to judge the earth, when he comes to do this, he will judge them, judge them and us, you and me, those on the basis of who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. How this ties together is this, is that when Jesus returns, those that will receive the resurrection of eternal life are not just those who say they believe in Jesus. It is those who actually believe in Jesus. Those who actually believe it, not just say that they believe it. And the way that you can tell whether or not they actually believe it is because their life has changed. That there is evidence in their life, evidence of actual belief that your life has changed because of Jesus. Your words changed. Your character has changed. The way you use your time. The way you use the God-given abilities that he has put upon you. What you do with your money and what you spend your money on has changed. That increasingly... Your life is characterized by love and joy and peace. Your life is characterized by generosity and a desire to be generous. Your life is characterized by humility and righteousness and showing mercy to those who need mercy. So when we see Jesus talking about this in this passage, we need to ask ourselves, are you really growing? Is there evidence in your life? Look at at, at what you do. Look at what you have done. Jesus will. Jesus will. You are not saved by your deeds. But you are revealed by them. And I fear for the American church. I fear for this church. I fear that there are people who come here and say, well, hey, I mean, uh, I I go to church. That's better than most. What else else do I need to do? I need to do three gifts a year? I mean, I I go to church. I I fear for people who, who are part of our ministries and they hear us talking about the grace of God and how it is unmerited and undeserved and then they presume upon it. I fear for professing Christians for whom the way that they spend their time, their sexual conduct and what they do online and other places, how they use their abilities, how they sacrifice others or no, for others or not. I fear for Christians who do this and their lives look no different. Than their non-Christian coworkers or the non-Christian neighbors. I fear for the children in our church who grow up in Christian homes, who never decide for themselves to follow Jesus. They never actually consider the decision, but they say, well, well, this is just what we do, and it's so much easier to go along with what everyone else is doing, you know, and I can just blend in if I just go along with it. You see, those who claim Jesus Christ as Lord, let me ask you, what difference does it make in your life? For the judgment of Jesus is just, and it is evident, and it will be sudden. Look at what he says. Don't marvel at this. Don't be surprised at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. An hour is coming. You know, there are moments, there are days on our calendar that we fear. There are like little mini judgment days. One of those is April 15th, tax day, you know. But the thing about tax day is that, like, you can plan for it. Like, you schedule it out. I know when tax day is in 2047. And you can schedule this day out, and you can adjust your year and your time and what you need to do for when tax day is due. And when April 15th rolls around, if you haven't quite gotten things done, if you've got some things that you still need to work through, you can file an extension, to August 15th. And on August 15th, there are designated post offices all over the country that are staying open till midnight on August 15th so that you can get your taxes done and bring them in and get them date stamped at 11.59 on August 15th. And if that's still not enough time, you can file another extension to October 15th to turn in your taxes. But when Jesus suddenly appears, you cannot plan for it. It is not something that you can schedule, and there are no extensions. There will be no extensions. He will suddenly appear to judge the living and the dead. And there are two dominant views right now that this conflicts with. Two dominant views in terms of how history is currently working in our country. You see, there's one view in our country where the, and these views are competing with each other and they are conflicting with each other. There is one view in our country that the way that history works and where history is going forward is that it, things are just getting worse and worse and worse and that our best days are behind us. So what, what we need to do is we need to recover America's roots, we need to recover the golden days of yesteryear and the long-gone and the bygone, the bygone era. We need to recover the time of the golden American America uh, civilization. We need, to, we need to recover that. We need to recover the good old days of yesteryear. The problem with that view is it begs the question, who's yesteryear, right? For who was that a better day? And there's a very particular strata of society for whom that is true. What's in competition with that view is a different view of the way that history works. That says history, history is progressive. That that things, the things are just that each stage of of history that there are challenges, but the goodness of humankind will prevail. That life will that the, each stage will get better. And where you are right now, what you need to do is you need to make a decision that you're not on the wrong side of history. Is the term that's used. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of history because the humankind is progressing and it will progress and it will prevail into a better and better state, into a better and better existence. As it relates to this issue of justice, the problem is that for those of you who have experienced injustice in your life, there is no vindication for you. There is no justice for the wrongs that you have experienced or been subject to. There's a hope that, that, that life will be better for your children and life will be better for your grandchildren. But for your injustices, too bad. But the biblical picture is neither one of those, and it confronts both of those. For Scripture gives no basis for optimism of perpetual societal progress, nor does it give a basis for, for, for pessimism. As if the Spirit of God is not at work drawing people from every tongue, tribe, and nation across the globe into a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want the biblical picture, it's of wheat and tares. They both grow together. The bad will get worse and the good will get better, simultaneously. And that scripture and that history is moving unstoppably, unstoppably to, a, to a renewed material universe where there will be resurrected bodies. And before that resurrected world comes, first, Jesus Christ will return. And he will return suddenly, he will return unexpectedly, and he will return at any moment, and there will be justice for the living and for the dead. Now, sometimes people these days object, and maybe this is where you are in terms of concern and wrestling through Christianity, and I do believe that honest questions deserve honest answers. But sometimes people wrestle through the idea saying, well, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? We could add a third one into that question. If God is all-loving and he's just and he's all-powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? What about all this injustice in this world? Well, this text gives you good news. There is great news, is that Judge Jesus will return. He will return suddenly, he will return definitively, and he will return totally and His judgment will be complete, and it will be just. That's great news if you're concerned about the injustice in this world. But until that day comes, the Lord is not slow to bring about His justice. He's not slow, He's not unconcerned about the injustice in this world. Indeed, 2 Peter tells us, this principle, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, that all should reach repentance. What Peter is identifying here is that the justice of God, the immense, holy, perfect justice of God, is being held back by the mercy of God. And the mercy of God is holding back the justice of God so that there would be time for people to repent. And that is today. That the justice of God is being held back by this mighty dam of God's mercy. And that every drop of justice that is due in this world Every every ounce, every river of justice that needs to come rolling down is building up and holding, being held back by the mercy of God so that people would not perish, but they would come to repentance and realize that they will stand face-to-face with the judge of heaven and earth and that they will need to give an account when they stand before him. And Scripture is saying that that God the justice of God is being held back by his mercy so that people will repent and they will turn and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who took the judgment for them. And like a dam that is holding back this river, every drop that is due will not be wasted, but rather there is an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is an hour coming when the justice of God will break forth, and the dam will burst, and the justice of God will go forward to render justice to every injustice that has occurred. And he will judge each and every person, both the living and the dead. And when he returns and sits on the throne of justice, you will find yourself in one of two positions. Is that either you will look at the throne of judgment with Jesus sitting upon it. And you will look at the one whom you have ignored The one you have presumed upon. The one you have scorned and rejected. And at that moment all will be laid bare. And nothing will be hidden from his sight. And you will stand before the one that you are completely accountable without excuse. And he will render his judgment and you will pass into eternal judgment. Or You will stand before the throne of judgment with Judge Jesus sitting on the throne. And you will look into the eyes of the one who is not only the judge, but the one who was also judged. Not only the one who was the subject of judging, but the one who gave himself that he would become the object of judgment in your place Because you actually believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And so I plead with you to believe in Jesus Christ and live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a sobering and humbling truth in your word. And Lord God, there is no place that you do not see. If I seek to run from you, where could I hide? If I go to the mountains, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I make my, if I hide in the darkness, even there, your spirit sees me and knows me and finds me. And, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, if you, Lord, should count transgressions and wrongs done, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is mercy. And, Father, I praise you that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, that you gave him to be our Savior, but you gave him to be our Lord, and you also gave him to be our judge. And I thank you that Jesus Christ is the one who perfectly fulfilled the law of the perfect lawgiver, that he is the one who did everything that we should have done but didn't do, that there was no deceit in his mouth, that he never said a wrong thing, that he never did anything wrong, that he perfectly lived for you. Lord, I thank you that Jesus Christ, holy and perfectly fulfilled your law. And I praise you that he gave himself as the perfect sacrifice, as the perfect substitute, so that your perfect and holy wrath and judgment would not fall upon us, but would fall upon him. So, Father, I pray today that by your spirit, that today would be the day that some people here pass from death into life. That this would be the day that some people turn and actually believe in you as their Lord and Savior and decide to live for you. Holy Spirit, would you do that? And Spirit, would you work in us that we would live every moment before your face and we would live because you have made us your own and that that would be evident in our lives. In the name of our Lord and Savior and Judge, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.